0: Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in.
1: Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. I
2: was in our 80th police basic introductory course in Greensboro and became an officer. And it truly was one of the most amazing jobs I've ever had in my life. Uh, It taught me so much about myself. It taught me how to be a leader. It taught me how to confidently make decisions And it also taught me that anyone can be a victim, as you said. uh, I was in this relationship with actually another police officer, and I remember going from call to call to call. um, We had quite a lot of domestic calls where I was an officer. The most interesting part of that is at night when I would go home and take off my uniform, I was living in an abusive relationship with everything from physical abuse, emotional abuse, financial control, isolation, you name it, I was living it during that time.
1: You are listening to the Preacher Boys podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host... Eric
0: Skwarzynski. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. I am so excited to be sitting down with Claudia King today. Uh, This is a long time coming, and I'm really excited to to get to welcome you on the show.
2: Thank you so much, Eric. I am really excited to be here. Uh, Yes, it is a long time coming. So thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I know we met uh, we met a while back. We were both taking this kind of online boot camp, uh, trying to figure out how to get our voices and messages out there. And uh, and I mentioned to you during that time, I said you need to start a podcast because you have a really interesting, powerful story. And uh, I'm I'm glad you have. So before we get into your story specifically, can you just tell me a little bit about uh, your existing podcast and what the goal is?
2: Absolutely. So it's called Strong Enough Podcast. And I decided on the title because I wanted people to understand that they truly are strong enough for whatever it is they're facing in that moment, because we're all facing something. And the podcast really focuses on relationship wellness. Now, that can be a romantic relationship, friendships, family relationships. You know, I think we've all been through situations where we have issues with each of those types of relationships and we're all wondering how to maintain them and how to keep them happy and healthy so sometimes I focus people who have been through a trauma and want to talk about getting through that but then sometimes I have guests who are just in a really awesome relationship and I Mm -hmm. want them to share how they do that and how they succeed so that those things can be inspirational for other people.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And and I love the I love the concept of being strong enough because I think there is a misconception, specifically dealing with domestic violence or abuse, which is things that we both cover very often on our show. I think there's a misconception that, you know, weak people get involved in these situations or find themselves in unthinkable circumstances. And one thing that I love about your story and about the things that you communicate is that this happens to everybody. Like there's not a there's not a common victim for lack of a better word, there's not a, a, a certain brand of person that gets preyed on. Like these situations can happen to anybody and the, regardless of how strong you are or how, you know, quote unquote weak you are, which I don't think many people could really be labeled as such um, you know, these things can happen and you do have the resources to pull yourself out of it and to, to really battle these situations head on. And I, I really do commend your show for for really pushing that message.
2: Yeah, I appreciate that.
0: Absolutely. Um, as far as your specific story, I do want to I do want to go back and kind of uh, give some context for you because uh, you've got a really interesting story. And like I said, you know what what startled me when I first heard your story was. like I said, we do have this misconception that people who get involved in in situations of domestic violence are, you know, they're weak or they're easily manipulated or they have traits that make themselves vulnerable to whether it's a cultish group or whether it's an abusive partner, um, you know, it's something about them. And the reality is you can be a very strong person. Um, and, And what's interesting about your story is you actually were a police officer and that is the last person you would imagine finding themselves in a domestic violence relationship. like we, It's hard to wrap your mind around that. Uh, can you talk, as much as you're comfortable sharing, mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about um, really what inspired you to be a police officer, first of all, and then how simultaneously you're working with victims of domestic violence while also being a victim of domestic violence at the same time?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to become a police officer initially because I wanted to be a detective. And Mm. when I was little, um, probably about from the age of five, I wanted to be a detective. And then when I grew up, I sadly learned that detectives were actually police officers. So I had to change my course a little bit and say, oh, I guess I want to be a police officer so Mm. I can become a detective. So I you know, went to school, graduated from school, and it was actually shortly after 9-11, uh, it was that year that I applied. And I just kind of said, you know what, what am I waiting for? I should just do this. I should just try and see if I make it. So I put in my application uh, to a department in North Carolina, a fairly large department that actually runs their own academy. So like I didn't have to go to an academy beforehand. I was thinking fiscally as well, uh, because I would get paid to go through the academy. And I just thought i'd give it a try and i was accepted into that i was in our 80th police basic introductory course in greensboro and became an officer and it truly was one of the most amazing jobs i've ever had in my life uh, it taught me so much about myself it taught me how to be a leader it taught me how to confidently make decisions And it also taught me that anyone can be a victim. As you said, uh, I was in this relationship with actually another police officer. And I remember going from call to call to call. um, We had quite a lot of domestic calls where I was an officer. And I would get really upset with these individuals. And typically, they were women. So I'll probably say she or her a fair amount. But i would get really genuinely upset with these people and say not to them but you know to myself or later what is wrong with them why don't they care more about themselves? Why are they doing this to themselves? And I even would joke, and this is really embarrassing to say now, but I would joke that victims of domestic abuse who were repeated victims should be charged with aiding and abetting because they Mm. were aiding and abetting the abuse by not leaving. And I really thought that, you know, I truly believed that. And The most interesting part of that is at night when I would go home and take off my uniform, I was living in an abusive relationship with everything from physical abuse, emotional abuse, financial control, isolation, you name it. I was living it during that time.
0: Did you recognize what you were experiencing as abuse or was it something where you were deflecting all of that onto the people you're dealing with day to day? Like, or was it something where you did understand it? And there was this kind of shame that you were feeling where you felt like, okay, I know I'm going through this, but the way that I'm going to cope with it is by focusing on, on other people's situations.
2: I think as time went by, it was all of those things. I think initially I just thought he sucked, you know, as a boyfriend and just wasn't that great. But at the same time. I didn't really deserve any better. So I'm just going to deal with it. It's fine. You know, he's really not that bad. These are all the things I would tell myself. So I think I was really deflecting it a lot onto the other victims that I was dealing with because I wasn't ready to accept it myself. And then when I finally did accept it and, and that took a long time, I mean, we were together think two, three years, and we lived together. Um, But once I decided like, yeah, this is, this is not okay. This is something that I should not be involved in. Then I was able to really see him for what he really was and start to see all the different actions as abuse.
0: We're speaking to your perspective as somebody who experienced abuse within, uh, I mean, within a position where, I mean, of all people, police officer, well put together, Mm-hmm. educated, like strong, tough, you know, in and, and dealing with these cases. But I, I do want to also turn this because one of the things we talk about are p- power dynamics uh mm-hmm. within churches usually, but within abusive relationships, there's power dynamics. And I'm always interested by people who are able to get into positions of power, whether it be a police officer or pastor, you know, different positions like this. Um when you look back at this relationship, Do you ever wonder why no one else saw red flags, like people who were in law enforcement, who were working with this person day in, day out, who were seeing his personality and his tone, like, you know, and, and obviously there's a big conversation nationally about police officers and, you know, aggression and all these different, you know, what should we be able to spot? Was he a chameleon or was it something where like someone should have seen this and stepped in and tried to assist?
2: That's a fantastic question, and I think there were those red flags. Obviously, there were those amongst my family and friends who saw him you know, more often that I ignored, but yeah, there were actually other officers and command staff who saw some things that probably should have alerted them To more. Um, Mm. He actually ended up losing his job. And I I don't know if he was fired or allowed to resign, but he lost his job there for falsifying reports. Mm. So there was a pattern of him lying. There was a pattern of him taking equipment when he shouldn't have. So maybe things that weren't directly related to abuse per se, but things that certainly should have given people pause and reason to ask more questions and dig a little deeper.
0: Why do you think people don't tend to ask questions in situations like that? Do you think it's purely just because it's an uncomfortable conversation? um, Or do you think it's a lack of understanding and resources relating to how to identify these red flags?
2: I think it's probably a little of both. Um, You know, I think we still generally, so many of us have that standpoint of, I just don't want to get involved. It's none of my business. And so it's easier just to back away and not ask the questions because once we start asking them, then we start to get the answers. And now what do I do? You know, Mm -hmm. now I'm presented with these answers that now I have to take action. And, And so I think it can be a domino effect that if people don't ask, well, then they don't have to deal with it. But I think it is also the inability to recognize these red flags. That's one of the things that I'm working more on, both with my podcast, but also in my day-to-day work at a nonprofit um, is really educating people about potential red flags. And Mm -hmm. yes, one thing or two things, it may just be a coincidence, but when we start to see things adding up and people doing things that just don't always make sense, we need to ask more questions and we we owe it to ourselves and we owe it to the people involved to dig deeper.
0: Right. Well, Pulling back into your perspective in this situation, because you're somebody who's sitting there, you know, you're you're going out, you're looking at other people, you're seeing clearly the red flags and what they should be doing. But I have to ask for your perspective. And for so many people that find themselves in these situations, why do you think people stay in these environments? Because there is, there's many, many people who have been in domestic violence relationship after domestic violence relationship, they've stayed within one where it's abusive for many, many years, even though friends and family may have stepped in and said, you should leave, you should leave. Uh, What, what was maybe your reason for staying and what do you see? Do you see similar patterns within other relationships?
2: I definitely do. And, and you're right because my family and the friends I was allowed to keep around um, said the same thing, you know, what are you doing? Why are you staying in this? First off, that's part of the problem. We never want to ask why questions because that only made me feel worse and it put me on the defensive. So now I'm in a position where, well, I have to defend myself and in defending myself, I end up defending this guy as well. So I think that's a big part of it is we, we want to prevent that shame and we want to prevent that defensiveness I think the reason that people stay in one relationship or kind of bounce, as you mentioned, through a cycle of different uh, abusive relationships is because we constantly are getting torn down. Hmm. So that's part of what an abuser does. And that can be part of the grooming process that you and I spoke about earlier is we as victims are constantly told we're not worth it. You don't Hmm. deserve anything else. You're not that pretty. I mean, you're lucky you have me. These are all things that I used to hear. You know, you're lucky I put up with you. What would you do without me? And so when you constantly hear these things over and over and over again, you really do start to believe them. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like for me, you know, when I put that uniform on, I was a different person. I was that officer. You know, it was almost like putting on my superhero cape because I was able to then go out and help people and make a difference where I couldn't even do that at home.
0: What are some of these red flags? So we should probably identify them before we move along. Cause I I do want to talk about actually leaving these. But when we talk about red flags, it's easy to say, Hey, there were a lot of red flags. Or it's easy to say in hindsight, oh, I saw this. What are some of the key things people should be looking for when they see someone that's off? Like, how do you identify the difference between, Hey, they had a bad day to this is a pattern of abusive behavior.
2: So when you're looking at these red flags, you want to look for that pattern. So it can be anything from the demeaning language, Mm -hmm. you know, telling people they're not worth it, getting angry, really easily yelling all the time, putting somebody down, using their sexual past against them, you know, well, you did this and that with him and that other guy. Why won't you do it with me? You know, making you feel bad about decisions that you made before. It can be financial things. So you know what? I don't want you to work. I don't want you to have to worry about that. I'll work. So I'll take care of all the money. Or, you know, you're not smart enough to handle our bank account. Let me do it. So again, you're breaking the person down, and in the same time, taking more control. So I would say if you're looking generally for red flags, and it's easy to talk about physical abuse, right? That's the one that we can see or that leaves generally some type of mark or soreness or, you know, a bruise, a broken bone, but really where the red flags come into play is the things that we can't see. So it is about listening. You know, if you have a friend who talks about her boyfriend that gets really angry all the time, or he got mad and he threw something and and broke something. You know, you're right. Somebody can get angry and that can happen. But if we're seeing this again and again, or if we're seeing he threw my phone and broke it. Well, in Colorado, that's actually a domestic violence crime. If you're in a Mm -hmm. domestic violence relationship, if you destroy somebody else's property for punishment or retaliation, you can be charged for that. So, these are the things that we need to start looking for. That, yeah, it doesn't seem like such a big deal that her boyfriend smashed the glass and cut something but it really is. And those are the things that we need to look for and see, is there a pattern? Is she afraid of him? Does she think worse things can happen?
0: You obviously mentioned, which I think is fantastic advice is don't ask why, like, why are you in this relationship? Because you are putting them on the defensive. What's the proper way to approach somebody? One, maybe with just a concern initially, but even going deeper than that, how do you approach somebody who is stuck in this pattern where you need to maybe employ some, tough love or really shake them out of this situation, say like, you need to recognize this is dangerous. Like this could lead to you being hurt or worse. How do you begin that conversation with a friend or a loved one?
2: So I think the way to begin that conversation is by asking, is everything okay? Is everything okay in your relationship? Are you doing okay? You know, how are you guys handling the stress right now? Some very innocuous questions that really can lead to a deeper conversation. But one thing that we realize in dealing with victims of abuse is that we can't make anybody do anything that they aren't ready to do. And one of the things that we say is, I can't define success for anyone else. So I can't define what would be a successful outcome for you in your relationship. All I can do is provide you the resources. So I would say, you know, just ask a couple questions. Again, not the why questions, Mm -hmm. but are you okay you need anything from me and maybe you know take what their answers are give them some time to really think about it don't fire questions away ask the question and let it sit out there sometimes that's the hardest thing to do right is just to say are you okay and then just stare at the other person but that's what you need to do let them talk let them open up and take clues from what they're saying but in the end you can't force them. Now, I would Mm. say when you said tough love, you know, probably the couple things that you could do that are similar to tough love is you could show them what's called a power and control wheel. So that's easily accessible on the internet. If you just type in power and control wheel, you'll get a lot of pretty images and some just black and white ones, but it really defines the different types of abuse. And it gives examples of what people might be experiencing. Mm. So like we talked about earlier with the minimizing and denial. So it's easy to say, no, 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 it's not that bad. Like he just yells at me sometimes, but when you can show people that wheel and start to ask them questions or let them look at it themselves and say, well, are you experiencing this? emotional abuse does he do this does he do that does he call you names does he belittle you does he not give you money does he make you ask for money does he hit you you know when you can look at that wheel and start asking those questions that's when people can really start to realize oh okay i'm seeing it in black and white this Mm. is this is something the other one is called a threat assessment those are a little more difficult to find on the internet, but you can find them if you just look up threat assessment and you'll see a couple different versions, but it's a way that you can present questions to the victim to determine what level of danger or threat that they're currently in. So mm-hmm. for example, it's gonna ask you, you know, is the abuse intensifying? Has it intensified in the last year? Is the abuser using drugs or alcohol? Um, you know, are they financially controlling you? There's going to be different questions they're going to ask. And, and at the end is a literal score of, you know, anything from it's not so bad right now to probably the next time I see you, you're going to be dead. And I want to be that blunt because this is the one moment where you want to be that blunt with the victim and say, no, look, this says You're probably going to be dead soon and you want them to take that in. But again, if they choose to go back, we have to accept that. And we have to know we gave them the resources that we could.
0: Right. Right. I I think for a lot of people who find themselves in these situations, there is also that, where do I go from here? Like you mentioned, when there's financial control, when there's emotional control, you're not worthy when there's all these different things and, and you're, you're basically Manipulate. I don't want to use the term brainwash because I think that term, the more I read and the more that I listen to experts talk about that word is rarely used now um, because I think it's too reductive of what is actually happening. But when your thought processes change completely to fit the narrative that's being told to you, it, it, it can be very difficult to imagine surviving without them. Um, There's that security of the familiar, you know, that people stay in Um, for somebody who's sitting there and is going okay, I'm in a domestic violence relationship. I know that. I know that I am probably going to be seriously injured soon, or I know that maybe my my children will be, or, or something bad is going to happen, but what am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to go? How do I get an apartment? Now, all those kind of things. What are the first steps somebody should take to safely exit a domestic violence relationship?
2: Great question. So I would say first and foremost, if you're in imminent danger or your children are, please call 911. Now, I know there are a lot of reasons that a lot of people don't want to contact law enforcement. So the agency where I work, we only get about 14% of our referrals from law enforcement. So that means 86% of our clients don't want anything to do with them. And that's okay as far as we're concerned. So I would say one of the first steps is to determine who is your support system. So who can you call in this moment of crisis? Who can you trust? Now, for some people, the answer is going to be no one. I, I don't have anyone anymore, except for the abuser. Um, and that's okay too. That's why organizations like mine exist. So mm-hmm. I can't speak for every other nonprofit that supports victims of domestic abuse in the country, but what I can tell you about ours is that we're there 24-7, so you can call us anytime. We can help with financial assistance. We can help you with finding a place to live. We can help you getting your kids back in school. We can give you clothes and food, so we exist to pull down those barriers that prevent a lot of people from leaving. Um, what you, what you asked, though, about you know, what should people do if they're ready to leave, first off, they do need to recognize that that's generally the most dangerous time is when you leave. Um, that is when victims are at the highest risk of being killed or seriously injured. So it is important to recognize that, and it's important to have a plan. So have a place to go where this person doesn't know. Consider getting rid of your cell phone or at least taking out the SIM card or turning it off in case they're tracking you with that method. Only tell trusted people where you're going. Mm -hmm. There are things like the Address Confidentiality program where people can actually give a fake address and have their mail sent to them. Essentially, it's, it's a lot bigger than that, but that's the basics of it. So I would say to recognize the danger that you're in and act accordingly.
0: Hmm. Now, are, are there any times you'd recommend not contacting law enforcement? Be, and the, the, the cl- clarity I wanna give to that question is, I know for a lot of people who are in, especially threatening situations, the concern is police come out the, the guy sweet talks his way out of them, you know, being there, or you're in a situation where, you know, for whatever reason, they can't arrest him or, or fill in the blank, whatever happens, mm-hmm. uh, the police leave your situation just got a lot worse. Cause you just called the police. Um, is there some step that should be taken before contacting the police? Is there, um, is there ever a situation where it's not wise to call them out to a certain situation? Like what would you recommend to people who are scared of that scenario specifically?
2: So this is a hard one for me because, of course, being former law enforcement, you know, I want to believe that the police can help everybody and they're always there to save the day. But we know that's not always true, particularly people who have immigration status issues. You know, they're very hesitant often to call the police. But like you said, more so is victims are afraid that if the police come, and it is you know, often that the abuser can sweet talk his way out of it, turn the tables, do something, and then the situation is far worse. So, you know, I don't want to give people the advice of whether or not to make that call. I want to say, if you are in imminent or immediate danger, call 911. Mm -hmm. It's just the best thing in that moment. But if you're not in immediate danger, you can always call your local advocacy organization. Um, So our number just for everybody out there is 970-668-3906. Now, while we can't help everybody all across the country, we can help find resources in your area. So if that's the only number that you can remember, remember that number and call us and we'll help you find somebody locally. But I think the best answer would be to at least reach out to an advocacy organization and find out what your options are. Sometimes we're a lot um, more courageous in the steps that we take when we have the confidence and the knowledge of what's going to happen. So obviously we can't make any promises, but we can at least tell you what the potential steps are that you can take, what actions you can take to protect yourself and how you can most safely get out of that situation. So don't suffer in silence, call us or call a local organization and at least talk through the possible steps.
0: And I'm glad you clarified that. Like, I think imminent danger, definitely call 911, like don't risk you know, mm-hmm. trying to evaluate or assess the situation, but uh, specifically to those situations where maybe they're not in imminent danger, but, you know, maybe that's, it's, it is a rising situation or it's escalating really quickly. Um, but they may not have something, you know, concrete to point to. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a really good piece of advice. Uh, I am curious. And, and the reason I'm asking of these about law enforcement is obviously your law enforcement background. And I know, obviously, like I said, there's a lot of national conversation happening. I think that there's there's not a lot of helpful discourse about um, about law enforcement and, and force and all those different conversations. But I am curious, from your perspective as somebody who obviously still loves law enforcement, you, you spent a lot of time in it, serving in it, when you look at how the law handles these cases, what are some areas you think There could be some improvement and you know what are some ways that you think that law enforcement could better assist victims who are in these situations.
2: That is a great question. Um, You know, I really think better understanding the cycle of abuse is a great start. Um, I know, you know, when I went through the academy, yeah, we did a whole section on domestic violence. And we talked about how those are some of the very most dangerous calls for us as law enforcement to go to, because a lot of times there are weapons, they're very heated emotionally. So it can be very dangerous for officers as well. But we never really spent time digging into what made that situation and what makes it Occur over and over again. Mm. So, I really think education is a great first step because when you don't understand something, it is sometimes hard to help. I think really focusing on who is the abuser and who is the victim is important because there are cases where, like we discussed, that an abuser can manipulate the situation. You know, he can get the victim to maybe hit him back but then now he's the only one with a mark Mm -hmm. and there are a lot of states that legally if somebody has a mark and somebody has said they were struck the law enforcement personnel must arrest so Mm -hmm. it's not a coulda woulda shoulda Um, this is the one area where um, they've taken out a lot of the guesswork and, and taken out your ability as an officer to make a decision, you know, really, yeah. and decide, well, I'm just going to let them go with a warning. So when it comes to domestic violence, that's not always the case. They have to make that arrest, which is great in one aspect, because. A lot of times victims are afraid to say what happened, but if they're standing there with a black eye and say they got hit, there is gonna be an arrest made, but it can also turn the tables in a way that doesn't turn out so well. So I would say education and then asking more questions digging deeper, you know, looking in your CAD system before you go to the call to see if there have been previous calls to this address. Maybe if you have time pulling up some of those reports of what happened at that previous address. So you have a better understanding of the dynamic before you even walk in there.
0: Context is so important. And Mm -hmm. I just, I just had someone on my show a few weeks ago and, you know, she had that situation in a courtroom setting where she, all of a sudden there's a new judge looking it over. He looked over her case for about 10 minutes and made a couple statements and remarks about some that really made her upset and made everybody who was watching upset because he was making statements almost bringing down the, the, the legitimacy of the issue Mm -hmm. um, because he didn't have any context for the relationship that had happened for the, the level of abuse that was happening. And I think in all of these things, you've said this time and time again, whether you're someone who's trying to assist a friend with your law enforcement, whether you're a leader, like you have to ask questions and get to know the story because just going off of one instance is not going to paint the full picture for you. And um, I, I really, yeah, I really want to get your perspective on that because I know even people that listen to this show, there are some mixed feelings about the legal system, mm-hmm. about law enforcement. There's people who've called and have had, you know, the ball in their mind dropped. But I also know talking to people like you, I've had, you know, some other former law enforcement, current law enforcement on the show, there's frustration on that end too, going like, we don't have the resources to really address these situations the way that we, the way that we should. Um, I want to, I want to ask one last angle, just as far as leaving, because this also makes these very difficult is, you know, we mentioned children being in the home Uh, for somebody listening who, again, knows, okay, I can leave. What do I do with my kids? You know, it it adds another layer to this. Uh, Would you recommend similar steps for them uh, reaching out to an advocacy group or would you recommend any nuance to how they address that situation?
2: I would recommend pretty much the same thing. So again, in our shelter, we accept children. We accept pets as well, Mm -hmm. because for a lot of people, those are their children. And we know that about 50% of victims with pets will delay leaving because they don't want to leave their pet behind. Hmm. So I would say with, with children and pets pretty much the same thing, you know, you want to make sure again, that they are first and foremost protected. You know, you don't want to necessarily tell your kids everything that's going on because depending on their age, that might be a lot for them to handle, but you may want to give them a little bit of information like, Hey, you know, if daddy starts yelling again, you should go to the neighbor's house
1: Mm -hmm. or,
2: you know, if I say some code word, you should call 911 and teach them how to do that. You know, if you feel like it's going to be a dangerous situation, do what you can to get the kids out of the home if possible and send them to somewhere that they can get help. It's also really important to practice those things. So it's easy when you're sitting there to say, "Oh okay, you know, I'll tell little Bobby to run to the neighbor's house. And then you tell him, little Bobby, if Dad starts yelling, run to the neighbor's house." And little Bobby's gonna say, "Cool, I got it. Um, but in the heat of the moment, little Bobby may not have it. So, Same with adults, you know, sometimes we freeze. So it's really important to actually practice these things. So if you're going to tell your kid to go get in the car and and buckle themselves in, well, let's practice that a few times. Let's, Let's say here's the code word and have the child actually run and get in the car and buckle themselves in and then you come out to the car or let's have you find your keys and run out to the car and click the unlock button. Cause we've all seen in the horror movies, you know, fumbling with keys and it, and it's funny, but it's true. You know, that's a time when we're so nervous that we can fumble and we can't focus on that, those small dexterity movements that we need to act. So it's yeah. very important to practice those things. And if you have kids have them practice as well.
0: Is there any legality thing with leaving? Because I think that's another thing too, is like, again, that's something can be turned. Oh, they took the kid and they left. And, you know, um, is there any legal thing that people should be aware of before making that decision to leave and go to a shelter, you know, unannounced or or slip out in the middle of the night with a child? Um, Is there anything there that they should be aware of that could be used against them later on in a court proceeding or, or in any kind of legal, legal avenue?
2: I think it's really important for them to document their actions and why they took those actions. So I don't want to speak about civil law um, for a couple of reasons. A, I'm not a lawyer, Um, and then I'm not super well-versed in civil law, but I do know that when it comes to custody, um, that's a civil matter, generally speaking. So what you would wanna do is document your actions and why you took them. So I would say if you do have kids, it would be really important to pretty quickly contact your local advocacy agency and explain this to them because they can often put you in touch with an attorney. Um, For us on staff, we actually have an attorney on staff who can Mm -hmm. kind of talk through that with you and tell you what the steps are, to gaining custody or to even getting a protection order. So if you can get a protection order and then have reason to have your kids on that protection order as well against the abuser, well, that's just going to strengthen your case for custody. So I would recommend keeping a record, documenting why you did something, and then getting that Noted pretty quickly from an outside source. So, I mean, talking to the police, if that's who you want to talk to, getting that report, even if they don't make an arrest, they'll still write a report. So, now that report's going to be in the system. Talking to the agency saying, This is why I took my kids. I was in fear of XYZ. So, now you have it documented from outside sources. And I think that's really key.
0: Yeah. I, I want to echo something that was said probably a year ago now on the show by a, another a person who does similar work to to what you do. And you know the the issue of protection orders came up and I I do want to repeat what he said, because I think it's important to realize one, and I think most people probably know this, but it's not a magical shield that's going to protect you from any violence. People violate protection orders, like that is reality. But what you just said, I want to just double down on for people that are disenfranchised with maybe law enforcement or are still go through the steps of getting protection orders, go through the steps of getting all that for the reason that you just mentioned, which is it's a paper trail showing that you've taken steps and that they violated those steps. Mm -hmm. Um, If somebody violates a protection order, it's again, it's not going to protect you maybe physically, like the way that you would hope a document like that would, but at the time they violate a protection order, it's going to bring a lot more heat toward them in the legal system for doing that. Like it's going to add more validity to your case Mm -hmm. and it's going to bring, it's going to give the judge a lot more leverage to really bring the hammer down on somebody like that. So please, again, whatever, I understand being cautious with a lot of things, but please go through the steps of getting a protection order filing reports, keep journals of what's happening, like any safe way you can document this stuff. It's so important. And I'm glad you mentioned the paper trail. Cause that's, that's something that a lot of these cases would probably, they'd have a lot more success if they could take those steps or find some way to document what's happening uh, in a, in a real way. Um, I, I want to get us into Just the very end here, I know we talked about your podcast in the beginning, uh, but I know you mentioned a lot about relationships and that's a key part of your, of your podcast. What are some advice pieces that you would give to people who are within relationships, who are sitting here going, you know, we, we want to have a positive relationship. We don't want to be, you know, we're, we're miles away from anything that's being discussed about on this show. Um, But, you know, sometimes, you know, I've noticed there's some things we do where, we can veer into something that is manipulative or we can veer into something where, you know, maybe unintentionally we're being abusive in the way that we're handling finances or we're handling discussions about things or we're raising our voice or, you know, all those things that we might just do as instinct or the way we were raised, all those kind of things. So for someone who's sitting here saying, I want to have a healthy relationship. I want this to look the way it should. What are some pieces of advice you've, you've developed over the years? And maybe even from guests you've had on your show, that would be helpful.
2: I would say the first one is kind of the easiest uh, in most aspects, and that is kind honest communication. So I say it's easiest in most aspects because communication is fairly easy. Um, It's the kind and honest part that a lot of us have trouble with.
0: Little tricky to to do that.
2: (laughs) Yes. And I don't mean in being honest, you know, I'm not saying everybody just wants to lie, but it's hard to tell somebody that you care about or somebody that you're in a relationship with, hey, when this happens, I feel this way or you know when when you yell i feel really upset and it and it brings me trauma or it you know it brings me to a place mm-hmm. of fear but it's important to do that because here's a couple reasons like you mentioned people may be doing it and not even realize it It might be that they're not an abuser. They don't have an abusive personality. They're just communicating in a way that they didn't realize was hurtful to someone they care about. Mm -hmm. So it's really important to call out that behavior. Um, I'll give an example of my own. Um, My husband plays a lot of video games, far too many. But he sometimes yells, you know, he gets angry at whatever's happening. I don't know. I don't play video games, but whoever is trying to be killed in the game won't die or whatever. Um, And he'll yell. And it, I started to realize that like, it really bothered me. It really disturbed me. Like I would get anxious. I would get upset. You know, I would leave the room. And so finally I said, you know what? I need to tell him because he might, he doesn't know this bothers me. Mm-hmm. So I did it from a non-attacking place. First off, I didn't say, you yell at these video games all the time. It's really stupid. I can't stand it. I hate it when you do that. You suck. Cause that's not gonna, it's not gonna go well, most likely. Um, but I said, first off, you know, I want to talk to you about something is now a good time. You want to make sure that the other person is in a space where they can hear what you're going to say, that they're ready to accept whatever information you're ready to give them. Because if they're not ready to accept, the conversation can be pointless. So then you want to kind and honestly communicate. So I said, you know, I know you get really into the games. Sometimes you yell though. And when that happens, I just, I feel really anxious. Like it actually bothers me and I don't really understand why, but I just don't like it. And so again, you hear from the way I said that I kind of put it on me, you know, yes, he's the action starter, but then I talk about how it makes me feel what it Mm -hmm. does to me kind of separate from him. And what happened was he said, oh, wow. Like, I really, I didn't know that. I'm so sorry. And he yells way less now, Um, but it's also a compromise, right? Because if he does yell, well, then I leave the room. So, I mean, there does have to be some compromise when you're dealing with not abusive behavior. Yeah. Don't compromise abusive behavior.
0: Right. Well, and there's context there too. Again, context Mm -hmm. is key to all this is, for example, it might not bother everybody. You know what I mean? And, mm-hmm. and, you know, for example, this, this is where I think it's important too, for someone listening. Cause I think, you know, like you said, you take some of that on yourself. It's not, again, don't ever do that for abusive behavior right. with somebody. It's like, don't, don't share the blame for why they do that. But for example, this situation you gave is perfect because getting amped up and yelling at a football game or at a video game or whatever, whatever that is, that's not inherently bad. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not an inherently awful thing. Like we get worked up about stuff, you know, there's things we get excited mm-hmm. about for your background, your context, hearing yelling is triggering memories of something that's happened that Mm -hmm. is extremely upsetting. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's going to bring out something very visceral in you Um, and it's important. And this is why there's not one golden thing for each relationship. You have to take into account that person's triggers and that person's, you know, things that are gonna set them off in that way. And likewise, like it's important for someone who's in your position to understand too, which I think is great that you do is like, he is not intentionally trying to set that off Mm -hmm. because the reality is people who come from a different context where that wasn't the day to day, they just don't think anything of it, Mm -hmm. you know? And so there's, this is why I love the kind, honest communication. The last two are pretty easy. We can honestly say, Oh, you suck. Don't do that. You know, like, but the kind thing and saying, okay, I don't understand. I think, you know, the easy thing for him to be would be like, Don't make a big deal about it. It's just a video game. I'm just getting excited about it. But for him to take the time and say, I understand the situation I'm dealing with. I understand who I'm dealing with. I understand that they've had this experience and that experience. I can adjust what I'm doing to meet in the middle and say, how can I make this a more comfortable experience for you? Mm -hmm. And that just doesn't happen. I think what happens in a lot of relationships, and I've seen this happen in our relationship at times, is the times where we're butt heads the most is just when we haven't said, Hey, why are you doing that? Or what's the reason, what's the reason that we're having this argument? Because usually it's a miscommunication. It's just not knowing, it's not knowing that this person's upset because of this, or not knowing that this person reacts because this is how their family always did. So they just do it second, without a second thought. Um, So I think context just keeps coming up, but it's so important. For all these different situations, um, I think that's great advice. Kind of wrapping up here, um, I, I know that uh, obviously we, we talked about the podcast, we want to push people there. Um, is there anywhere else you'd like for people to connect with you? I know you mentioned um, your advocacy group, Summit Advocates. Mm-hmm. Um, if people want to get a hold of them just one more time, what's the best way to do that? And then if someone wants to follow your story um, and, and get to hear more from you, what's the best way for them to do that as well?
2: Awesome. Thank you. So I'm going to give you a couple different ways for Summit Advocates. The first one is our crisis hotline 24-7. It's 970-668-3906. You can also email us at info at summitadvocates.org. Now, if you're afraid that your devices are being monitored, you can send an email to summitbookstore at gmail.com and ask for a book about Annie. A-N-N-I-E. We will know that that is coded communication, and then we will communicate back with you in coded language about our bookstore until we can determine a safe way to talk with you. So if you are fearing that a device is monitored, just email us at that bookstore address, and we will communicate with you appropriately. Uh, as far as the podcast, we are on all social media networks at strong enough pod. And then you can also reach us via email, StrongEnoughPod at gmail.com.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for, for joining me on the show. Love that we got to talk again. It's been a little while I know. and, uh, and really excited for all the stuff you're working on just personally. And, and obviously with some advocates as well, uh, there's a lot of great work being done, but thank you so much for joining me on the show and definitely everybody who's listening. Uh, head to the show notes, check out all all the resources that we've mentioned. There's plenty of links in there and uh, be sure to check out the strong enough podcast. It's definitely well worth your
1: time, but uh, Claudia, thank you so much.
2: Thank you so much, Eric. I appreciate you.
1: Thank you for listening to the preacher boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com.